Welcome to the Living with Fire podcast, where we share stories and resources to help you live more safely with wildfire. Hi, I'm Megan Kay, your host and outreach coordinator for the Living with Fire program. On this episode, I got the opportunity to talk with John Griggs about his experiences with wildfire as manager of Maggie Creek Ranch in Elko. And later on, I was able to talk to Jolie Rector and Todd Ballo about what they do to deal with wildfire living in a high fire hazard area. Enjoy the interview. I'm Megan Kay, the Outreach Coordinator for the Living with Fire program, and I'm joined by John Griggs from Maggie Creek Ranch. Welcome, John. Hey, thank you. Great to be with you. So um, I did a little research, but if you do you mind just kind of like giving us a little background on Maggie Creek Ranch? Yeah, sure. So so Maggie Creek Ranch is is a reasonably large uh, cow-calf and, and stalker beef operation in Elko County, sits kind of between Elko and Carlin, Nevada, and it's about 200,000 acres of public and private land that that we that we graze on. It's it's owned by a family. The family's owned it since uh, 1975, so what is that? 46 years maybe. And and I'm the hired manager here. And I've been hired I've been the hired manager for uh, 23 years now of the 30 years that I've worked here. Wow. So you you basically we're a leader from the beginning as well it sounds quite, like. quite a bit of it anyways what um are you guys how familiar familiar are you guys with the wildfire risk in your area i imagine you work pretty closely because you also graze on public land that you work pretty closely with um land managers and things like that so what you're seeing is multiple fires that range in size from hundreds of acres to thousands of acres to to at least one fire that's hundred thousand plus acres there. So that's that's what we've experienced in fire in the last 20 years. Uh, multiple fires that in some areas have, have burned multiple times and uh, you know when you're looking at that you're you're thinking probably 70 percent of that 200,000 acres has burned at one time or another. And that's just in the time that you've been there? Correct yep. One one of those fires in 2007, the Marge fire, it was about a 9,000 acre fire, but it burned over um, compounds of the ranch, compounds of the headquarters. So in that fire, we lost a house that burned to the ground. We lost another house that burned significantly that we had to destroy. We lost an office building, um, other other outbuildings, and another house that was damaged significantly. So a lot of experience with fire um, besides buildings that we've lost we've lost cattle which is also painful we've we've put ourselves at risk in fighting fires and trying to trying to move cattle away from from fire and, and fighting fires ourselves so yeah we've, we've got a lot of history here so with your with your experience what kind of uh, like right now what is what kind of preparation do you guys do for the wildfire season the dry season what does that look like on the ranch? Well, th- there's there's a lot of thought to it. So there's there's thought about about keeping yourself safe, right? And and your and where you live and your houses and things like that. And then there's thoughts about keeping your cattle safe. And then there's thoughts about protecting your factory in that <clears throat> the rangelands that our cattle run on is is our factory. And when when that burns, it's years before it's back in production, if ever. So it scales up. And what our thoughts are. So 
and keeping ourselves, our families, and our in our the place we live safe. The thing that we learned in that 2007 fire was that in a wind-driven event, it's really pretty tough to keep wood structure safe. I mean, you think that you have a you have a green area that's defensible. You think that roads will help you defend it. You think that a lack of trees and you know, just just sagebrush is more defensible than than places that we traditionally think burn. Like, uh, you know, you might think of a house or a cabin that's in the middle of a forest somewhere is is really fire prone. In our case, you know, that wasn't our case. We had very minimal big trees. Um, you know, we had areas that we thought were really defensible that turned out in a wind driven event were not. Yeah, because of the structural ignitability of a wood house. So have you have you guys done any work um, to kind of, you know, retrofit and shore up those structures, maybe putting a metal roof, you know, things like that? Every chance, every chance we get to re-roof a building, it will be a steel roof because that's, for us, that's number one. That's, you know, asphalt shingles are, are certainly, are certainly more fire resistant than, than a cedar shake roof, but nothing is as good as steel. And so that's, that's number one. Now, the number two thought is, is, is where a house sits in relation to rangelands. Rangelands are obviously more at risk than an irrigated meadow or a, you know, a road area or things like that. So buildings that are closer to rangelands get a weather eye towards being fire resistant more so than buildings that sit in the middle of a, of a irrigated meadow. And, and, and we, we do kind of try to retrofit or at least expand fireproof areas or fire resistant areas around those places more so than like that wet meadow area. Before you mentioned factory, do you mind uh, explaining that to me? Like, what do you, is, are you talking about like the um, just the the grass that the the cows feed on and everything? Yes, exactly. So our our in in the business sense of a cattle ranch, the cows that we run are the tool that make our product. Cows make calves that we sell. The factory space is is our rangelands that produces grass and forage that our cows need to exist. You know, we may not lose cows to a fire, but if we lose if we lose the grass that they consume and we lose the ability to produce that grass in sub- subsequent years after the fire, then um, we really struggle to stay in business. And that's that's a common thread across ranches in Nevada. So what kind of projects do you do in the rangeland um, to try to protect that factory? So we, we think of fire in three phases, before, during, and after. Before the fire, right now, the biggest single contributing factor to large uncontrolled fires in our area, maybe everywhere in the West, is the invasive annual cheatgrass. Cheatgrass, when it cures, ignites like gasoline. It makes the actual woof like gasoline does, and it makes it makes fires uncontrollable in my in my experience. So so we're thinking about cheatgrass right now. We're we're just getting to we're just getting kind of a green hue to rangelands in, in my area, South Slopes are starting to green up and a lot of that green up is cheatgrass. And we're thinking about concentrating our cows on that because when cheatgrass is green, it's a desired forage for our cows. And it's frankly a fairly decent forage in quality. Um, high in high in protein and it comes earlier than than the desired native plants that that we like out there. So if we can camp, sort of camp our cows on cheatgrass, make them eat that so that that cheatgrass doesn't reproduce, 
in theory, we had less of it. And in practice, you know, by, by reducing this year's crop, that's less to burn. So, so we do that kind of in two ways. We, we do that sort of passively in that um, right now our cows are calving in areas that are cheatgrass prone. And, and we do it actively in that we identify, like, like we have a targeted grazing area right now that, that's a study. It's a study area, but it's, but it's working in practice. Targeted grazing area that we will put cows in a fence strip and we will haul them water with the thought that, you know, it's kind of the nuclear option and that we're not really worried about about a native component in that area. What we're trying to do is make defensible space. We're trying to make a fire break that fire managers can use to control fire. So, so those are two things that we're doing before fire to try to mitigate risk of fire this coming season. Do you guys do any, besides targeted grazing which i mean makes total sense because you have all these cows do you do any other um control methods like prescribed burning or i mean i, I i'd imagine mastication is not a huge option but so, things like that we have done some control burning but we feel like in our area in the in the cheatgrass era controlled burning is kind of off the table and it's really tough to keep cheatgrass out of a burned area. Even even resheating post-fire is not a guaranteed success that that will keep cheatgrass out of the equation. So for us, for the most part, controlled burn is off the table. We haven't done mowings ourselves, but our agency partner, Bureau of Land Management, has done some in our area that helps. Um, but we we prefer to use cattle to do that as opposed to mechanized equipment. And, and really, that's before fire, that's kind of it for us. I mean, it seems it's a, you're right, you bring up a good point. It's a constant battle. Like you try to burn to get rid of the fuel, but then you basically are creating a vacuum for native or for invasive species to come in and kind of take and take over. And especially with such a large area to manage, it doesn't seem, yeah. Like that would work. Well, and the other thing too is is the last time we did a control burn, it was to try to mitigate big stands of decadent sagebrush that were really kind of crowding out everything else and, and were a massive fuel load that we thought we could burn in January. We had an open January one year that was fairly dry and we thought it would be a good time to try to build some mosaics into that big stand of decadent sage. We're talking about maybe 300 acres. That fire about got away from us in January and, and was a tense time. And so that kind of put the lid on it for us to, to think about a control burn. Evacuations are stressful. Often communities aren't given much notice before it's time to leave their homes. Prepare for evacuation now. Create an evacuation plan and pack a go bag with at least three days of essentials for every member of your family including pets. Go to livingwithfire.com slash prepared for more information. Do you mind if we transition to kind of what it looks like during a fire? How do you go about keeping everyone safe and even possibly evacuating during a fire? We, uh, in Elko County, we have a very robust volunteer firefighter system. Um, we're, we're a part of that. We have an Elko County brush truck on the ranch that we use on us and on neighbors. And then we have equipment of our own, um, a water truck and a dozer that we use. With our agency partners, we really focus on initial attack, keeping fire small and catching them before they before they get big. That That's probably the first thing. 
97 out of 100 times probably in, in, in our area that is successful. We keep fires to the initial attack phase, tens of acres as opposed to hundreds of acres. And that's that's really the goal. Three out of 100 times we, we do not succeed. Fires go big and go hundreds to thousands of acres. What we need to think about there, first we focus on initial attack, and that really involves people on the ranch that are trained and fight fire. And, and we don't really involve other folks on the ranch that are not. So then when we transition to big fires, then we start thinking about, about the community at large, not just not just fire folks on the ranch. So so the thing that your listeners could take from me and what I would want everybody to think about is that when fires go big in your community is the time to start thinking about what your personal response is going to be, what your personal setup looks like, what your house looks like, what you care about that is at risk. You know, livestock, pets, family, houses, buildings, those kinds of things. And and I say this in a way to say that when there's a smoke column in your area, that's the time to think about what your response is going to be. Because by the time that you recognize that fire is a threat to you, it's too late to think about that. You know, that's kind of why we exist is we're trying to give people resources, knowledge and empower them to live more safely. That's what I really appreciate about your efforts. When you have all of this, all of these personnel and, you know, cattle to, to look after, what kind of resources besides your personal resources do you call upon? Are there, um, if, if for some reason you would have to get like, you'd have to move cattle really fast. Is there like a network of people with trailers or do you have to build that? For us, we almost have to triage our livestock. In a rangeland environment, we know that that fire moves so fast that it's not safe for us to be a horseback in front of a fire. We, we, we don't do that. That kind of ties into that notion of there's fire in your area. You need to make plans before you're at risk. So you shouldn't even be in a position, what you're saying, where you have to make that split second decision. Right. So that upfront plan would be making sure cows can't get trapped, you know, gates open where they need to be open and cows in my experience anyway do a, do a fair job of getting out of the way when they can so you got to be able to make sure that they can i hate that triage thought but horses are more valuable to us than cattle so we definitely want to get those out of the way and you know things things like that you're you're thinking about things like that and you may you may call upon neighbors to to bring vehicles to help you with that but emphasize preparing early so you don't ever have to be in that position. So now I have a good idea of what happens during a fire. It can be scary. <laughs> um, yeah, absolutely. Yep. Having been through some major fires, especially the one you talked about in 2007, um, I think you already touched upon it, but two, two parts. One part, do you, what have you learned from those events? And um, do you have any uh, mitigation plans this year? Like, are there any big projects that you're working on that you kind of chip away year after year to make the ranch safer? And then also, um, if you have any tips for for other ranchers or just, yeah, people in, people in the community at large. The biggest thing I learned that I want listeners to know about, the drum that you're beating, I lived in that you can think that you're prepared, but you need to think bigger than what you're thinking. We thought we were prepared for the fire we experienced in 2007. We were very experienced with fire prior to that, and we were taught a very painful lesson. 
I pray and hope that nobody ever lives that lesson again. And so the preparations you're making, you know, when you look at your property and you look at your livestock and you look at where you live, think bigger. Another thing to think about is make relationships now. So whether you're a you're a homeowner in a somewhat at, at risk area or you're a rancher on rangelands or or any combination of, the, of those things, make relationships now. You know, you don't have to be a volunteer firefighter, but you can know who those folks are and you can know your your fire managers in your area. And you can have those relationships so that when things are really bad, you can know who, who to talk to and you, you can know how to get information and you can know how to make plans. You can have answers when you need them. And that's that's a really big thing. You know, I don't I don't really have ongoing on the ground year to year projects other than what we're trying to do for fuels mitigation. But one thing I do year to year is maintain relationships with with fire agency folks and land management agency folks that deal with before, during and after fire. And you can be a resource to them as opposed to, to put it bluntly, somebody that they will have to deal with that doesn't know that, which which takes away from their effort. That's a pretty big deal to me. Well said. Where would wildfire rank on the risk for, you know, a cattle ranch? Because um, I, I imagine there are, are, are a plethora of threats that you have to deal with, you know, on a daily and weekly basis. But uh, wildfire, it sounds like it it has the potential to destroy large large portions of your, your grazing land, um, which is a huge threat to your profitability. Um so where, where would you say it ranks? Think about it in that sort of metaphor I'm using with factories. So, so, so think about it as a, as a big box store. Is, is, is the shoplifter your biggest number one threat? You know, cattle rustling is alive and well. We, we still brand our cattle to identify them, to, to mitigate that to some extent. But burning our factory, burning that big box store is our number one threat. It, you know, unlike the big box store, it it can to some extent rebuild itself, but that that could take years. Um, and it you know if if native rangelands comes back as a cheesegrass monoculture, then we've lost a lot. And and not only have we lost a lot, we're at risk for losing a lot year after year. Right. And the other thing about the other thing about fire to me is a as a ranch manager, as a rancher, is it's it's a big big thing to me in that it's really been hard to be proactive for me. Feels like, you know, when I show you that 70, 80 percent of this ranch has burned in the last 20 years, I've had a hard time clearly of being proactive to that. It feels like I'm always reactive to that. You know, it seems like whenever we get ahead or, you know, or trying to trying to do things to get ahead, then then we torch off another 20,000 acres. And and I have to react to that. I have to find a place for those cows or or, you know, find a way to keep myself and my my coworkers employed without the factory to support our cow herd. So, um, yeah, long answer to say number one. of wildfires nationwide are caused by people. 
If you're planning on heading out and enjoying public lands, visit NevadaFireInfo.org and learn how you can recreate responsibly and do your part to prevent wildfires. I'm Todd Vallow. And I'm Jolie Rector. The reason that I, w- that I wanted to reach you guys and wanted to talk to you for this podcast is, you know, I follow you on Instagram, Jolie, and you posted this past summer, summer 2020, um, about all the wildfires that had come close to your house. Um, for example, the post that really resonated with me was in October, you made a post and <laughs> you said that there had been eight wildfires within five miles of your home. Um, and that just sounds very stressful. Is either five or six out of those eight, we could actually see open flames. I know some of those photos that you shared were uh, intense. <laughs> just that's that's the feeling that I got from them. So I was wondering, could you guys just describe um, what kind of effect that had on your your daily lives, and uh, yeah, just in your own words, kind of tell us what it was like. It was it was a <laughs> it was an interesting summer because as more and more fires kept popping up nearby us, uh, I would get into this habit of just when I would go outside of just checking the horizon and, and the nearby areas to see if there was any smoke in the air or open flames that we could see. Or one of the, the later ones, uh, I was working at my desk and my computer powered off. I went, oh, that kind of felt like a transformer blew. So I walked outside and sure enough, one right across the highway from us had blown and there was a a fire going. And you just, um, besides being ready to go, we had had things packed so we could get out if we needed to again quickly. Um, There was a lot of, oh, not again, (laughs) kind of frustration uh, that would build up the just it was hard to believe. And, and, and there was, there was already one this year and it wasn't a brush fire. It was, um, <clears throat> I think it was an abandoned car in this quarry. That's not too far from us, but in January we saw smoke going up in the air and, and we're, we're going already. It's, it's, we're just barely starting 2021. And here we go again, although we were never in any, in any danger from that. It's just the, the, the mental state you get to be in of, being prepared and also uh, finding it kind of tedious in a way. So you, it sounds like you guys always have your bags packed now. Always have that that go kit and that emergency bag. In the summertime. Yeah. In, in the, the wintertime, we unpack and live in the house. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but yeah, it's summer, the peak of fire season. We have We have suitcases basically living in the bedroom. Or at least we did last summer. How does that compare to, I mean, because you said you've been there since 2012, you, Julia, like, how did last year compare to other seasons that you've lived through up there? Well, fire seasons are generally pretty frightening out here. When I was here before Todd moved in, there was one fire that was started by a homeless person living at the bottom of our neighborhood uh, down in a ravine, and he started a fire trying to, goodness knows what, cook dinner or something along those lines, and... um but that didn't get out of hand. And honestly, the fire that came through, the big fire that has put our home in a sea of burn scar. What fire was that? Was that the Poville fire? or That was the Anderson Acres fire. It was July 23rd, 2020. And, um, you know, we had already, I think this was like our fifth 
fourth fire of the season, something like that, because our neighbors started a fire in their yard, just, you know, cutting down the grass to try and uh, maintain for fire season and fire started. Fortunately, they got, he got that out really quick, but Todd was on it. He was ready to run over and go help put it out as necessary. So that was our first fire of the season. And then we had the, uh, the Poville fire, which we could see, which fortunately we're on the, uh, the leeway side. So the, you know, the wind was pushing it away from us. Although even as the wind pushes a fire away, it still slowly expands that border, um, on the windward side, leeward side, whatever. So what was it, um, uh, during those fires, did you guys have to evacuate at all? Uh, we definitely evacuated for the Anderson Acres fire because I was looking, I was doing something over the sink in the kitchen and looking out the window above the kitchen sink and saw flames rising up at the bottom of the neighborhood. And we've got a little uh, hill across on the other side of the freeway from us. And, uh, and the flame started and was going two thirds of the way up that hill up that hill from our view and it was like oh my gosh what do we do and finally i just yelled out in the house i'm like get the dogs get the kid and we need to get out of here we had no bags no no bag we didn't even have uh pull-ups for the kid or shoes we just got like okay phone computer necessary things that we need for work and just getting around in the world, the present day world and, and get out. So we had to evacuate in six minutes. We didn't even really know what we're, we were going to do. We called our friends that live over in Sparks um, and they're in a high fire area too, you know, out there, the Los Altos area and those little hills over there. And, uh, but we went over there and, and then Todd went back first to see if the evacuation order had been lifted. But, you know, we drove away from the house thinking we're homeless. There was a wall of flame heading towards our house. And then we, it, it had already hit the road on the way out. And uh, I, from what our neighbor Only said. Only way out of the neighborhood. Sorry, Todd. Yeah, it, it made us, um, made it to our fence in about 12, 12 minutes from where it started. Where did it start? Like in relation to you, was it very close? Do you know? It was uh, okay. about a quarter of a mile away. Yeah, maybe trees. even like an eighth of a mile. It was so, so you didn't really. It's not like something you could see the the flames coming over the hills. It was right, it was right in, there, right in your backyard. Yeah. And then it sounds like because you guys are so prepared now, it sounds like maybe was that the incident that made you think that you know we need to have our bags packed. Yeah, and then Todd has done a lot of. Um, I we both kind of go teamwork at it. I really work on the gardens around the house and Todd has put in gravel paths and we've both been diligent over the years to cut down sagebrush on the property because this house was a foreclosure and I feel like a lot of people in our age bracket are buying foreclosures because that's what we can afford and we're slowly fixing them up as um as we get the means to do so and so that's exactly what this house is and this property is you might even remember I don't know if you were up there that season in 2012 when I when I got that. Yeah, I remember when you were uh, when you bought it. I never went out to the house though, but the um, but yeah, I was up. I, we were working together at that time. 
the the uh, the whole property looked exactly like your background there, just sagebrush <laughs> all around the house. You know, if if there would have been a fire to the extent of the Anderson Acres fire back in 2012 or to you know through 2000, probably all the way through 2015, then this house would have gone up just in flames and been done. Yeah. So in in general, what would you say is the overall kind of um, vibe of the community in terms of like, are your neighbors, are, are they active and trying to remove, you know, the sagebrush around their homes and install more rock and, and, and gravel? Is there kind of community wide efforts or do you feel like everyone's kind of doing their own thing and not really kind of working as a neighborhood together on it? Um, I don't know that we necessarily work together as a neighborhood, um, mainly because there's only, what, 12 or 14 homes in the neighborhood. Okay. And they're all on um, larger parcels, like an acre or more. And a lot of them are on two or three. So, uh, but everybody does maintain their, we don't talk about it. So we don't have like a, a game plan as a community, but everyone, for the most part, maintains their own property and keeps it clear it keeps the grass mode where 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 that's you, where you can do that safely, and uh, keeps the sagebrush pulled out uh, as best as possible. Our um, neighbor across the street after that fire, the Anderson Acres, because had it jumped the road that we're on, a long view, there was a, a, quite a bit of sagebrush and bitter brush right along the road that could have caught fire, and then that home could have gone down uh, potentially but they've since cut that all down. When you moved in, Jolie, were you aware? I mean, you know, wildfires are scary. We have them in this area, but were you like totally aware of the risk of the wildfire risk up there? I knew high fire zone. So, you know, I'd heard these phrases uh, put out there. And, you know, when I first got in here, because we are literally our next door neighbor is a volunteer fire department. And at that time, they were having regular Wednesday meetings where they would go over and um, the volunteers would sit down and have a meeting. And at some point, I think I was communicating with them because you know how I am. I like to go up and say hi to everybody and meet all the people and um, interact and socialize and flap my lips because I'm a talker. And uh, <laughs> and they were like, you need to, you need to put defensible space around that house. And so I was working nights as a blackjack dealer at GSR. And, um, and so my system was, I would work on the weekends and then I would get up and go out and fill my, my dumpster, um, with as much sagebrush as I could pack in there. And so that would be my Wednesday routine. I would get up, go cut down sagebrush, fill up the trash can and take it up because they picked up our trash late at that point. And, um, and then I had someone come over and help me just do a big cut down of sagebrush. And so the defensible space has been slow. And one thing that I would, that I would think for listeners is to, you know, be aware and make the changes necessary try not to overwhelm yourself. You know, if you cut down one sagebrush or one rabbit brush, then that's that much more space that you've just opened up to not literally be a a torch going 
Yeah, I think a lot of people get overwhelmed because we give all these defensible space recommendations and they're like, I can't do all of this. And then maybe they just don't start. And yeah, just you're you're absolutely right. Just removing one bush at a time will reduce the risk <laughs> for sure. Yeah. And then going from there, because once you start putting, I don't know, I've been thinking about entropy a lot, you know, because we're all living in our households. And so there's a certain amount of energy that's cycling through the household. And you can always, uh, you know, if you put energy in one direction with within the system, the closed system, then it's going to be conducive to uh, continue that within the system. And so, you know, if you cut down one sagebrush, then it's going to open up space for you to see what else, what, you know, what needs to be done from there. And then you cut, you take the next step and then your next step will be presented to you. And so, you know, it is a slow process, but it does gain momentum as you, as you work with it. Well, have you, um, what have you guys learned with like creating your defensible space and working on your house? And what, uh, what are you, uh, what are you planning on doing this year to kind of prepare for wildfire? Well, uh, definitely one of the things we learned is, um, that the, the gravel works great and that, um, if it had been windier, our outcome might have not have been the same. Um, uh, so where there's actually some of the gravel paths that are a little bit further away from the house, uh, they're about four feet wide and we're probably going to expand those by a couple of feet, um, to try and keep it from even getting that close to the house. And also uh, clearing out around the fence because uh, a lot of the our fence was held up with wooden posts and those are all gone. And um, so it's because they were burned. Yeah, they they were <laughs> they got destroyed. And unfortunately, um, yeah, there's there's some metal posts holding it holding it up as well. So it's still standing, but the the wooden posts are all gone. And uh, it's good to keep that area clean too. And it's so it's not just your house, it's, it's avenues towards your house. There's um, the frontage along our road. That's a, a, an easement. It's not technically our property, but I make sure I keep that all cleaned down with the grass because we have a, a pretty large wild rose patch that it's nearly impossible to clean out the dead wild roses out of there because of the thorns. <laughs> and if that got, if that got hit by a fire, it would be pretty, crazy the the damage it could potentially do now it's far from our house and we have a lot of defensible space between us and them so you guys have or i mean i feel like you guys have already shared some great tips for listeners but is there anything else that you want to share anything uh that comes to mind you know when it comes down to it your house and your material belongings are not important your health your safety that's what's important so pack up Get your animals, get your kids, make sure that everybody's safe and just let the firefighters do their work. Because if you stay behind in an evacuation and they have to come in and use the area around you to manage a fire, if people are still in their homes and refusing to evacuate, which we do have a lot of uh, neighbors in the neighborhood that are guilty of that, then it doesn't allow the firefighters to do the work that they need to do because now they're focusing on your safety rather than working with the fire. And so I think that's really important is just, just go somewhere safe. If you're in a, a really sketchy situation, just pack up, get out of there, go somewhere safe and do whatever it is that it can help you calm down. 
Thank you for listening to the Living with Fire podcast. You can find more stories about wildfire and other resources at livingwithfire.com. The Living with Fire program is funded by the University of Nevada, Reno Extension, Nevada Division of Forestry, Bureau of Land Management, and the United States Forest Service. <laughs>